So I uh, called that talk, Does Science Need Faith? with a question mark, and my answer would be yes. <laughs> and, um, but perhaps in a way that's a little different from what you might be used to hearing. I'm trying to shift that conversation a little bit. But I think it's first of all an important conversation. So people of faith are getting challenged you know, by results of science, which people suggest you know, undermine the faith, or that people who are still believing something are just behind the times and have not really read up on the latest results of science, or are just even in willful denial of that, and that they might just live in an alternate kind of reality uh, clinging to ancient mythologies perhaps and just merely appealing to the god of the gaps to solve some problem um, which then has already been explained by science or will be explained by science. So the suggestion is faith is either outdated or superfluous and doesn't really have a place anymore. So if, I, if I'm right, that's actually not true and so I hope to show some of that. Uh, I also find it ironic that people uh, appeal to the objective results of science in an age where postmodernism proclaims that there is no such thing as objective truth. Try to get that together. You know? But that is a conversation for another time. But um, So what should we think about this? What should you think about that? Maybe, I mean, if you're lucky, you have perhaps a good catechetical back background you know, from your faith. And uh, you're coming to this university, perhaps as undergraduates, and people sort of insinuate these kind of things to you. What should you be thinking about that? I think the very first thing to notice is that faith, uh, that, excuse me, that science, natural science, might overstep its boundaries in even uh, claiming that it has to make an argument about, say, the existence of God or not. How would a biologist? argue or prove that God doesn't exist within the field of biology. That is sort of outside of the scope of biology. Uh, or physics does the same. All of these sciences actually presuppose other and more fundamental sciences that they cannot take account for or that they cannot themselves argue for. So for example, um, geometry. Geometry is not a natural science, it's sort of a normative science that natural science has to avail itself of, for example, in the field of optics. So you use the laws of geometry within optics in the field of empirical study, um, but optics is not proving the principles of geometry. So geometry is presupposed and more fundamental than the empirical science of optics. Or if you take mathematics and how it is used in physics. So physics is formulated with equations. And for that, you have to presuppose certain mathematical rules by which you manipulate these equations and so forth. And that's not arbitrary. But it is not physics that proves how mathematics operates. It presupposes mathematics. And <clears throat> More largely, there is a field called metaphysics that has nothing to do with weird things or occult kind of things. <coughs> this is just the science of being as such, as Aristotle would say. They're the very principles of being and from which we then derive also the principles of logic, for example. This is where you argue, perhaps, about the principle of non-contradiction, so far um, as arguments can be made about this or the principle of the excluded middle, and so forth. All these things are presupposed in all these sciences, whatever they are. So physics presupposes that we should think logically of the You cannot uh, make a physical theory that is logically inconsistent. Then you would violate the, logic, the laws of logic, and that is not allowed. And so, But physics does not prove the laws of logic. It is presupposed. So. There's a whole range of sciences that natural science presupposes and cannot argue for. And if you are looking for a place where you make arguments for the existence of God, yes, there can be arguments that are made within the sciences, but most of the arguments are actually here within metaphysics, the very foundations and foundations of what reality is and how we are to think about it. So <clears throat> that's... Uh, this is not even the argument I'm trying to make tonight, but it is, I think, first of all, uh, to 
clear sort of the playing ground <laughs> to say that uh, natural sciences are actually subordinate sciences and uh, they should be careful not to overstep their boundaries. What I want to say in addition to this is that there are actually within the natural sciences fundamental assumptions that it also cannot uh, account for, and that it presupposes, and they amount to a particular kind of faith. So if you, um, if you take a contemporary kind of context, typically arguments are made within evolution theory that it perhaps contradicts the account of Genesis and so forth, and that you don't need God to explain apparent design in the world of biology. And people will make counter-arguments, there's Michael Beely and others who will talk about irreducible complexity in biology that cannot be explained by random mutation and selection. Uh, and those are, I think, important and good arguments that people should make, but they are all within the field of biology, and they are also subject to empirical kind of developments. So you, you might indeed uh, discover things that can account for certain phenomena that we didn't think uh, we could explain biologically. And then what we do we do? Then we are again faced with the God of the gaps argument. So um, this is again not the argument I'm trying to make uh, tonight. But it is the playing field, or that is the, um, the realm in which the arguments are typically located. And then you find the typical age-old kind of reprimands. So people of faith say, oh, then science must be just from the work of the devil, and we shouldn't even look at that. You know? That's the wrong response. Don't do that. You know? uh, but it is sort of a knee-jerk reaction. And from the other side, again, what I said earlier, well, this is just behind the times. And what do people of faith do in the middle of it? Well, some people uh, compartmentalize. You know? So the theory of double truth, you say, this is true in science, this is true in faith, and never shall the twain meet. You know? that, uh, that also we cannot do. It was actually Thomas Aquinas, uh, Dominican, and Albert the Great in the Middle Ages who argued that you cannot really be faith and science, faith and reason apart from each other and say these are two different fields that have nothing to do with each other. They have to meet, they have to dialogue, um, even if they're methodologically on different grounds. So, but where they really come, I think, into contact is not within biology, I want to say, but in something that both uh, sides within biology presuppose, namely physics. And how so? Well, um, if you let's see, if you are thinking in biology about things like random mutations, uh, what does that mean? Does that mean that these mutations don't have a cause? No, it does not. You know? um, there might be all sorts of things that uh, affect a kind of genetic change. There's a, the physical or chemical processes going on that bring this change about. That's not what is meant by being random. We do presuppose that whatever is affected there, including what we call random uh, mutations, obeys the laws of chemistry or physics or um, other kind of sciences that we consider more fundamental than biology. And within that realm of physics, um, we do um, accept that there are laws and that these laws can be described by mathematical equations, as I said earlier. They might affect something like random mutations, but they are not themselves random. So even if you have um, quantum mechanics or something like that, this can still be described by equations that describe it perhaps in a more statistical kind of sense, but all these um, are mathematical laws, mathematically formulated laws, that um, we think um, regulate the behavior of matter in the universe. And we do think of them as the greatest achievements of modern science since Galileo. And we rely on them uh, for our everyday endeavor. Whenever you use a tool, a technology that's built with, uh, based on these laws, you rely on these laws. When we build spacecrafts to fly to the Mars and with rover or something like that, and 
uh, and let it drive around there, we can only do that because we have these laws that are sophisticated enough um, to predict future behavior. We can predict how matter is going to behave, not just now or in the past, but even in the future. <clears throat> so we would consider this as the most advanced expression of secular rationality, and our modern technology is based on it. Now here is already a first kind of act of faith that is involved in that. Still, people coming there are still a few more seats, actually, in between here, if you want to do that. When he's standing in the back. So, if we say these laws of nature that we formulate by equations hold across the universe, and that's why we can build spacecrafts to fly to other parts of the universe or extrapolate to different uh, parts of the galaxy and so forth. Um, how do we actually know that? I mean, these are laws, and by their nature, they are universally true. Otherwise, they wouldn't be laws. How do we know that this is true, not just here at Yale University, not just true in London, perhaps, or on the Earth, but even on the moon and the whole solar system and the next galaxy, how do we know that? Have we ever shown that? Have we ever proved that? Can we even prove that, even if we wanted to? You know, if it is really a universal law, it would hold here now, but also way back in the past. How would you start an experiment to prove something that happened in the past, and whether that actually followed these laws or not? Moreover, we also assume it's also true in the future, because based on these predictions, we can build technology. How do you prove that it is true in the future? It's not there yet. You cannot test the future. And of course, not far away places either. Perhaps you would even have to say that any possible occurrence in the universe that might not even be actual follows it. Can make that even. Let's say you, you test something by using a microscope you know, and, and looking at uh, an experimental procedure at something through a microscope. Now, while you are looking at that uh, through the microscope, the same laws, of course, operate in the microscope, and you cannot do at the same time test the microscope that you're looking through. You know? It's just in principle not possible to test all these different cases and have a complete induction from all cases to actually demonstrate that this is universally true across the universe at all times, past, present, and future. That is a leap of faith, really. So we assume something that goes beyond the evidence here. It might still be a rational assumption, but exactly on what premise is that a rational assumption? So I do think there is an important thing to, to notice here. Another suggestion you might make is, well, maybe all things in the universe behave uniformly because they have all the same starting point, namely the Big Bang. So at the very beginning, there was this uh, the singularity, and um, from there, everything else emerged. So one single point, basically. And so uh, if it all comes from one point, it might be then very homogeneous, or at least uh, behaving uniformly in the same kind of way. Um, whatever might be the case about that physically, uh, I think there we also have to notice uh, that this is actually backwards. Because how do we know about the Big Bang? We know about the Big Bang because we presuppose these laws of nature to extrapolate back to something that happened in the past. <laughs> There might be still present evidence of that, but to interpret that, we use the laws of nature to trace back to a past event uh, that we then might call the Big Bang. But that presupposes that these laws are operative. It does not prove it. Understand that? So it means it's basically the other way around. You know? 
so um, again there is uh, a leap of faith here of some sorts now all of these laws um, are not self-explanatory here's another point to be made so basically here is sort of leap of faith number one um, the other question is let's assume there are these laws and they operate what does that imply where do they come from is it self understood that things that matter behaves in a regular kind of fashion that it always does the same thing including so simple things like this piece of chalk is always falling down regularly all the time predictably according to certain laws that Galileo formulated. Why is that so? Who told matter to behave that way? Does that need an explanation? So I said earlier, um, these, uh, so even the, the random mutations in biology presuppose the regularities of physics. And these regularities themselves cannot themselves come about randomly. Random or chance events, what's that? You know, if you say, well, maybe that just is a random kind of freak of nature that things like behave like that. You know? um, but what, is, what do we call chance? Well, it is not a thing. Chance is not a thing, first of all. And if it's not a thing, then it cannot really cause anything. If anything, it is the absence of something we want to define what chance or random means, it is the absence of regularity, precisely the regularity that we are trying to explain here. That is even how we notice it. You know, we, we notice that there might be something displaying regularity and in fact it doesn't, so we're surprised by that. But it is only on the background of an already existing regularity that we notice this gap, basically, this absence of regularity. we also define random events that way. There are, I mean, how else would you define something being random? It's something that does not come from regular kind of laws and order um, that we otherwise would assume. So it is indeed um, the notion of something being chance or random that presupposes regularity, not the other way around. Aristotle um, gives an example for um, a chance occurrence, which is somebody digging in the field and digging up a treasure. So that, that's a chance event, and um, how lucky you are that you hit upon this treasure in the field. But does that mean that there are no causes that bring that about? No, there's somebody digging there, and so there is one sequence of events that follows a certain kind of regularity and purposes and so forth, and a certain kind of chain of causality. Now there's an independent chain of causality that originally put the treasure in the earth. And what is the chance aspect of that is that they intersect at that point. And, um, and so you get lucky that way. But it doesn't mean that there's an absence of laws or regularities or causality. It is for our perspective to call that a chance event. And so the regularities, though, that are still at play there in this intersection of causalities are not explained by these chance events. Um, so chance cannot uh, explain or cause that order or regularity that we are looking for. So we are still left with the question, where, do they, where does that actually come from? What makes that regularity happen? Who tells nature to behave that way? Now we all instinctively know that regularity needs an explanation. Just imagine you're going hiking somewhere, beautiful mountainside and so forth, yeah? walking along the trail, and lo and behold, you come across a place where you find, say, uh, two bottles of beer, 
three cigarette butts, and an empty suitcase. What will be your reaction? <laughs> well, who on earth can litter this beautiful mountainside with this kind of stuff, right? I mean, that, that's just nasty and disgusting. Now then you continue to walk, and one mile, mile later, you find a similar scene. Two bottles of beer, three cigarette butts, and an empty suitcase. Then your reaction might be, well, what a coincidence that the same configuration uh, reoccurs here one mile later. Very strange. What are the odds of that? Then you keep walking, and another mile later, lo and behold, there is the same configuration. Two cigarette butts, what did I say? Three, two bottles of beer, three cigarette butts, and an empty suitcase. Hmm? At that point, you will say, whoa, this cannot be an accident. Somebody must be doing this intentionally. And every time you come across the, uh, the same scenario one mile later, that will just increase. This cannot be just an accident. This cannot be random. That cannot be a freak of nature. Somebody must be doing this intentionally. If you're walking across the trail on the mountainside and you see these trees standing around, you typically don't wonder about that. But let's say suddenly they form an alley. Then you would, might wonder, well, somebody probably has planted them this way. This way you know? So it's a, a typical reaction. And from what I just said earlier, it just uh, confirms our intuition that order requires a cause. And the cause, we think, that uh, is, um, has some intentions. That is, it must be something of a mind. I'll come back to that. Um, now, if we assume, as we do for laws of nature, as I said earlier, that these laws hold universally for the whole physical cosmos, then the cause that orders all these causes among each other cannot be just one of them. The cause that orders all other causes that way must be outside of the physical cosmos. So here's where we get a glimpse of a creator, and yet, uh, indeed, intelligent design. Not the intelligent design that people typically talk about in biology, but the very laws of physics, which we usually forget. But these two are in need of an explanation. Because there are these kind of regularities and order, and order is not self-explanatory. So again, the the cause that orders the whole of physical reality, the entire cosmos, cannot be in the cosmos. It must be an ultimate cause that uh, transcends the cosmos. And you know, Thomas Aquinas would conclude by saying, and that is what we all call God. At least it's the first hint at that. And if that is true, our regular assumptions, even within uh, science, uh, indeed imply some kind of faith, a rational faith. And that is, in fact, what um, the early scientists that we usually um, appeal to all knew. So the early science, I mean, it's not the typical story that you're typically being told is, well, uh, science had to uh, you know, force its way out of the Middle Ages and against the church and against faith and the darkness of that and the superstitions until finally it liberated us you know, to a, this kind of enlightenment. No, the early scientists were all religious believers. And they did not see any conflict with that. Leibniz, for example, um, Newton, Galileo, from all the stories we know about him, was a practicing Catholic until his life's end. He did not see any conflict there. Kepler, all of these. It's much later that, um, that there will be actually this rift. I mean, it begins in the 18th century, but in the 17th century, that simply is not the case. Most of them argued for some of their physical theories with the existence of God. So for example, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, not consistency. I'll, I'll come to me later. Anyway, so, um, but take for example Newton. Yeah. Newton said, well, there are these laws of nature. That implies we need a lawgiver, you know, who again tells nature to behave that way. So you need a lawgiver 
that is God. Did you know that Newton actually wrote treatises of apologetics? He wrote a whole commentary in the book of Revelation. He did not see a conflict there. He, he actually thought this is of one piece. You know, this is one uh, unbroken fabric of faith and science. It's not a conflict at all. And if I'm right, um, it, must, it cannot be a conflict, but in fact implies certain aspects of faith. So here we have um, one step more. And this is not about, um, not even about you know, arguments from fine-tuning, if you are familiar with that. So people say that the equations are so finely tuned for us to be here that itself is an indication of intelligent design. That's not the argument I'm trying to make. Any order, any tuning, so to speak, of the universe of that kind would imply that. So now there must be a cause, I said, and we call that God, but we can um, say something more about this cause, namely. Now I want to say the cause of order must be intelligent. Why must it be intelligent? Well, because uh, only intelligence can produce intelligibility. Laws of nature give the universe an intelligible kind of structure that we can come to know and understand. That's what science, after all, studies. And it requires, again, a mind to order something intelligibly. Only a mind, in this way, can put material things together in a unified kind of fashion. There's something peculiar about the mind that way. If you just uh, think right now, I mean, all the things you are aware of in this room, the things you're listening to, the things you might be even smelling, and anything that you see, there are many things, right? But they're all unified by being in your mind. Mind is a unifier, basically. And you unify things that are not themselves unified, all the things in this room, for example. Material things don't unify themselves with each other in that way. A mind can do that. If you just have a heap of paper clips, they don't have any kind of intelligible order with each other. Um, but you can put them together in some kind of an artistic fashion and give it a particular intelligible order that way. There's actually more to that. You know, a heap of paper clips actually is already more uniform than one should assume. These are all paper clips. They're all the same kind of things. That's a, it's itself a kind of a unity that they all share. And that is actually not self-understood. So people today actually argue about why is it that we have all these, uh, these particles in physics that are all the same? What makes them all the same? It's not usually something we think about, but it is actually also not self-understood. So people make arguments about that currently. Um, that even that should not be taken for granted. But again, with these uh, unified kinds of things, you can even then make further things that, um, by which you unify them and bring them into some kind of order. And that is something a mind would do, not the matter itself. And if that unity that unifies matter in that way covers everything across the universe, the whole cosmos, Again, then it is a mind that is beyond this cosmos, outside of this cosmos, so as to regulate it all. So, mind unifies. Now, the unification. Um, is a mathematical unification in the case we are looking at. So the equations. Um, could it be that mathematics itself is doing that? Some people might want to suggest that. Some people, for example, will say, well, the universe came into existence by the laws of quantum mechanics or something like that, by these equations. But how would laws do that? What are laws? Laws are 
descriptions of how things behave. They're not themselves things that exist somewhere in empty space and then do other things. Uh, mathematics is not a thing. That's, um, it requires itself a mind to exist in. And mathematics themselves doesn't do anything. The mind that knows mathematics might use it to indeed change things in the material universe, but the, the numbers and figures themselves don't do that. The equations don't do that themselves. They are causally inert, as people say. So I mean, they, don't, they have an inertia, so to speak. They don't themselves do anything. And in fact, they are, uh, when it comes to laws of physics, just descriptions of how things behave, not those things that make it behave so. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, has various proofs for the existence of God and the so-called fifth way um, is an argument from order. And I think it's best understood in the way in which I'm trying to explain it right now. And so he says, all right, there are certain regularities in nature that always consistently behave in a certain way. And that must be explained by a mind. Why? Because the image that he's using is that of an archer. An archer tries to hit a target. So you take the bow and the arrow and, and try to hit that target. That requires a certain kind of foresight. And so if something always hits the target, that seems to imply then a mind. You can, if you think of that, let's say here are you, the archer, and here's your target. That's what you're trying to hit. Now let's say somebody's blindfolding you, right, and puts you on a platform that is spinning around like this all the time. What are the odds of you to hit your target? even once. Okay. I mean, there are infinitely many ways of going wrong. You know, every little segment you know, can subdivide, and there's infinitely many ways of doing that. It's only one way of getting right. So I mean, the odds of something like that happening randomly uh, are just uh, so that, that you would never assume that. That's just for doing it once. How about doing it repeatedly? And if you have laws of nature, it will universally and always do that. That would be a real oddity if that would be just a random kind of event. And certain things, certain particles, do behave like the archer seems to behave because they have a propensity to do one thing rather than another. Certain chemicals will react with other chemicals predictably. Uh, the chalk will predictably fall down. So there are these kind of regularities. But again, who tells these things to behave that way since they themselves don't have a mind? Another way of thinking about that is about um, habitual behavior. So habits are something like skills that we develop. So if you have a pianist and you're practicing a lot, um, you are intentionally putting your fingers on particular keys and you do that repeatedly. And the more you do it, um, the more uh, clearly you will hit your target, like the archer, who also has practiced presumably a lot. And so um, there you have a regularity, but it depends on you having practiced. And practice requires a mind. It requires foresight. You need to intend to do one thing rather than another. And relative to that, you know if you have actually missed the key or something like that. You will reinforce success and correct mistakes. But for that, you have to have the foresight to know what you intend to do. Now, that's for us who have a mind. But we never see the chalk practicing its free fall, you know, so as to make that regularly and habitually hitting its target. So that, um, uh, indeed, seems to require a mind, just as the arrow requires the mind of the archer to go somewhere. And so Thomas Aquinas suggests that, um, therefore, there must be a mind behind the regularity in the universe. The, the universe, the, the physical cosmos uh, that behaves that way requires a mind to uh, organize it that way.
Now that's still not the whole story. Let me give you another example. To it's another leap of faith if you want. Um, so let's say here's the sun or any kind of um, star around which certain planets circle. That's already probably saying too much. But let's say you observe one planet and you have these kind of data points. What would you assume is the course that that planet takes uh, to reconstruct that? Well, it's something like a, a circular kind of form, or I guess maybe elliptic or whatever, but it's a regular kind of form. Now, why would we assume that? It could be something else altogether. It could be going like this. Even going backwards, you know, we don't know that. It could be as abstruse as that, you know. Who says that this is not so? And yet, we will assume that the most elegant kind of cause of action will be the true one. Why would we assume that? There are multiple, I mean, there are many. Uh, quotes from Heisenberg and Einstein and others who, ex who say we expect these wonderful equations, these simple kind of equations, these elegant ele uh, equations to describe the universe, or simple geometrical forms um, that uh, certain things take. Why would we assume that? There isn't, maybe the universe just is a very messy and chaotic place. You know? But we seem to take it for granted that the simplest and most economic explanation of nature is the best. Now, one might suggest that perhaps this is just a matter of convenience. You know? So we have these data points for us. It's the most convenient way of putting them together in the simplest kind of form, because our mind is so simple uh, that we cannot grasp the more complex kind of features. You know? So maybe it's just a mere matter of convenience. Well, that can actually not quite be. Um, because we do not just assume that we can put all of our data, um, I mean, first of all, if we could put all of our data in these kind of simple equations, that would still be surprising enough. But there's more going on. Um, because, as I said earlier, we do build, for example, spacecrafts to fly to Mars and so forth. That means we expect nature to continue to behave in that way. Now that is actually a huge leap of faith because again, what tells nature to do that? If nature is just chaotic or just accidentally it happens to fall in a uniform pattern, then there's nothing intrinsically in nature that makes it do that same thing over and over again and predictably so. And therefore, we wouldn't have any um, assumption. I mean, that, that really is an act of faith if you step into any time on a plane, for example. You step on a plane, you assume that these laws of gravity and so forth and aerodynamics just keep going the same way. But that's actually not self-understood. So if you have um, a theory that predicts 50 cases in the past, or let's say organizes 50 cases in the past, and correctly depicts 50 cases in the future, that theory we would consider better confirmed than one that uh, explains 100 cases in the past only. Because the prediction is perhaps the most unlikely thing to happen. If it is really a random kind of thing, you know, you have A and A and observe A again and A again, but in the future, would you expect A again just because it has happened that way in the past? Maybe you would, but why? Um, if you are rolling dice and you're rolling a six all the time, would you then suddenly expect a six again to come up? No, if anything, it's probably less likely to be a six yet again. So if it is merely random, uh, our laws of nature would not predict anything. So there must be something that makes things behave in this predictable and regular kind of fashion. 
<coughs> including in the kind of uniform and elegant ways that we have described earlier. There would not be any way to uh, sort of have an induction that gives us laws of nature for the future otherwise. Here's a quote by Robert Kuhns. He says, among the universes that agree with all of our observations up to this point in time, the number that can that go on to break this generalization is far greater than the number that continue to respect it. The objective probability that every generalization we have observed extends no farther than our observations is infinitely close to one. Thus, relying on induction in such a universe is demonstrably futile. So if that were so, as I just said, I mean, uh, then we would not be able to predict future behavior. In fact, it would be the least likely of all things to happen. So there seems to be something that makes be nature behave that way, and particularly in this uniform kind of way, uh, that seems to work. You know? So again, what uh, does that imply? We assume and trust our simplest theories to be true, and that not just as a matter of convenience. That is a very, very deep assumption about reality that we don't usually t uh, account for. What that implies, I want to suggest, is that there is not only a cause of order, not only is it a mind, but it is a mind that is supremely knowing and wise because it knows the best and most elegant solution. And we trust that that is true. And uh, has also the power to put it into effect. So if God, let's say, would know the best possible solution for the laws of nature, but is too powerless to actually realize in the universe, uh, then we also wouldn't expect that. So our assumption that there are laws of nature, that they are universal, um, and that they follow the law of the best and the most economic explanation implies a God who is powerful, who is the most wise and all-knowing, and perhaps we can also say um, benevolent enough to create the universe that is of that sort. Um, <clears throat> so this is not something we typically think about because it's so, so fundamental and close to our assumptions that we are not aware of that. And that's what philosophy does. You know, philosophy takes those things that we take for granted or self-understood and puts that in question or you know, brings that to our awareness. Um, and that, uh, you know, there are even things like, you know, you've heard of Occam's razor. That we should not, in our theories, multiply things um, beyond necessity. So we shouldn't just assume, let's take Bertrand Russell's example, this tea kettle that's circling around the mouse and, the, and, and whatever else comes next. You know? um, so we don't randomly assume things without need for our theories. So we, it's a principle of parsimony. But what that means is uh, that we are supposed to construct our theories about reality in such a way that they are most economic, most simple, most elegant. Well, that's exactly what I just said earlier. Uh, but it, there's an interesting corollary to that because usually these principles are um, taken to mean that uh, you don't have to have all this metaphysical stuff or God and so forth and you can get rid of all these assumptions of faith because it doesn't do anything in science and so just out of parsimony and, and econ economy, we get rid of that. Well, if what I just said is true, then this itself is a theological principle. Why would we assume that the universe is not a messy place with all sorts of entities in it, unless there is a mind that is thinking in economic and elegant kind of ways, namely the mind of God? So you cannot use that against God because it is itself a theological principle that wouldn't hold otherwise. Well, there's this uh, famous story of where Laplace um, was visited by Napoleon, and so Laplace explained to Napoleon his 
uh, model of the universe, and Napoleon tried to poke him and said, oh, and wh where's God in, in your, uh, your theory? You know, don't you need God in that? And, and so Laplace famously um, replied, I don't have any need of that hypothesis. Now, again, for, for the steward, I just said, yes, he does. <laughs> he certainly does. But even this very argument to say, I don't need that, is actually an appeal to parsimony. That itself is a theological principle. You know, we don't usually think of that. Because why would we think that the universe is sort of economically structured? So um, again, we arrive at the mind that transcends the universe, that is all-knowing, knows the best, and is powerful enough to bring it into effect, and is benevolent enough to do it as well. And implicitly, even atheist scientists believe that, even though they don't know it, because you know, they don't take account of their presuppositions here. Uh, it's important to notice that this is not a god of the gaps. As I said earlier, a god of the gaps is when we think, well, an example people give, well, people appeal to the god of thunder because they didn't know an explanation for thunder and why it's making this noise in the heavens. And so then they invented this god of thunder. And now that we can um, explain thunder, we don't need god, that god anymore, and we can take him off our list, basically. And so it was really nearly a god of the gaps that filled that gap until we knew it better scientifically. This is not the argument that I just made. There is no gap here in that sense. This is not to explain things that science cannot yet explain. It is to explain the things precisely that science does explain. And it explains to scientists why there's anything to explain for them. Because it's not self-understood that there is intelligibility in the universe and that science can discover that. It presupposes something else. So it's not the god of the gaps. It explains exactly what is being explained and why it can be explained. It's a very different kind of argument. So, um, let's see where we're time-wise. Let me just, um, by way of conclusion, go then a little bit beyond the more narrow question here of physics. So if we have a God that's implied here that is all-knowing, all-powerful, benevolent, and so forth, um, and a transcendent cause of the universe, that actually make that's I mean there are certain assumptions in there that are assumptions of faith, if you want. They're not themselves coming out of these kind of sciences. They are more fundamental kind of assumptions that they presuppose. That is not the kind of faith we are talking about when we talk about the faith of Jesus Christ. These are this is a kind of faith that is embedded in reason itself, independently from any kind of revealed faith. A Muslim, a Jew, a Christian, they can all agree on that. Um, I don't know about Hindus and others, but I mean, it does not depend on any particular religion so far. But if that is true, then it opens up a completely different perspective on even the possibility of God being able to reveal himself in other ways as well. So if God is all-powerful, if he's all-knowing, if he cares about us, is benevolent enough to create a universe that is predictable for us uh, so that we can reasonably live in it, is it then so implausible that he also would reveal himself if he knows that we need it? So let's say we are morally and otherwise in dire straits and we need his help. Is it implausible that such a God would then also intervene in history, and yes, also in the physical cosmos, to reveal himself, perhaps even with miracles? If God is the cause for the order in the universe, then he can also suspend that order. There is no contradiction there. And he would do it for the very same reason that he uh, constructed the universe in the first place, namely out of benevolence. So he might then indeed um, reveal himself in Jesus Christ. You know, St. Paul, um, the book of Acts, when he was in Athens, he um, tried to preach to the Athenians. And they were men of reason and philosophers and so forth. And so he appealed just to their 
uh, reasoning about the universe and so forth and try to bring um, the faith uh, in Jesus Christ to them that way. And he basically pointed to an altar that said, um, Deo ignoto, to the unknown God. You know? And he says, I notice you are such pious people here. You know? so you have an altar here to the unknown God that just didn't want to leave anything out. Well, you know, in a, in a, in a bit, the God that I'm uh, extrapolating here is something like this unknown God. A scientist, once he comes, uh, becomes aware of these presuppositions, might see that is uh, that might uh, be an opening for him to consider other things as well. Is that unknown God that is being revealed here? And so, if there's a God who is of that sort, he might care enough to do that as well. And that's then also where revealed kinds of faiths uh, will have their own plausibility. I think that might be a good place to stop and entertain some questions. that does assume universal laws of nature, um, I think that would just follow, regardless of whether that's just a human analogy or not, because it covers, indeed, all of created reality. You know, it's not, um, it's not moving from a particular case to all of reality as being created that way. It is about all of created reality by definition. Now, I said that is a, itself a bit of a leap of faith, but. Um, it seems that we are willing to make that and um, indeed to rely on that even with predictions and so forth. So I think it's not just an, a local kind of analogy that uh, would, might go too far by ex being extrapolated. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, so why is it more intuitive that there should be like a God that created this, like even this broader sense of order? Why is that more appealing than to know that it could just be like a brute fact that these laws, this regularity, this order exists? Well, that's what I've. Uh, try to say, I mean, that um, that the brute fact is definitely not what we intuitively assume, you know. I mean, that was my example with the trail there. But also, um, it wouldn't, I mean, random would be, I mean, brute fact would be random. You know? Unless you want to say that it is logically necessary that there are exactly these laws and not others. Uh, that there couldn't possibly be otherwise. Now, I have not met anybody who really tries to argue that because that doesn't make sense. Because uh, if the laws couldn't be otherwise, then any other law would entail a logical contradiction. And that seems to be pretty obvious that's not the case. And so, so it's, it doesn't surprise me that nobody is making that argument, really. Um, maybe some spinocist might, you know. but, um, but so that would be the one thing. The other thing is to say, I mean, brute fact that doesn't require further explanation. Well, then you have these random and chance events, which I think uh, that's just implausible. I mean, nobody would assume that. No scientist would assume that uh, coming across certain regularities, uh, not looking for some kind of a reason for that. I, I don't know how further to argue with that. I mean, that seems to be just so basically counterintuitive. You know, and, and it is something that wouldn't also I mean, why would we get on that plane, you know, and assuming that the future will be just like the past, if it is just a random brute fact, you know, if there's nothing that makes it happen in that regular way and necessitates it to be so? I hope that makes sense, you know. But a good question, yeah. Yes, please. Um, will be positive, perfect intelligence brings an order of universe, and how do we explain that manifest disorder? Ah. And not just caused by human will, but also caused also in nature and genetic abnormalities. And yeah. Um, well, the question is whether disorder needs an explanation. I mean, order needs an explanation. 
disorder is what we take for granted in the absence of any further reasons. If I don't care about you know, the order in my room, it will be a chaos pretty quickly, and I don't have to do anything for that to make it happen. It will be just sort of, by its own, uh, be disintegrating, entropy or something like that. Um, so disorder doesn't need a cause, and that there is disorder, uh, that is not an argument for, or doesn't explain the order. You know, I mean, the order, regardless of the disorder, still needs an explanation. And so, in that sense, I don't think that's anything that undermines um, the argument I made. Because regardless of the disorder or not, I mean, the order still needs an explanation. What do you think? But wouldn't a perfectly ordered mind, wouldn't a perfect mind create perfect order? That depends on what you mean by perfect order. Uh, I think the world is perfectly ordered, but not perhaps from our perspective. That's sort of the reverse of the analogy argument. You know, we might think that um, this universe is a mess, you know, but that's by our dim lights and analogies um, that uh, we don't see the deeper order in that, which God would see. Um, so that's at least a possibility. I mean, I don't prove that in this case, you know, but um, that's what uh, I think one can still assume. So God will have good reasons to allow certain messinesses too. And nevertheless, it seems that the universe behaves in this kind of regular fashion. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I don't see fully why this is an account of the gaps argument when uh, there's a gap in knowledge and we don't know the origin and cause of mm -hmm. the laws of nature. Um, therefore, we presuppose God. Like that seems to be like the similar logic that you apply to like supposing God is the cause of what Yeah, uh, it, you can call that a gap if you want, but it's a different kind of gap. You know, uh, and a gap that people don't usually get into their view, and so I just want to say. That. So I mean, it's uh, not the gap that explains things that haven't been explained. It is explaining the explicability that's there. You know, um, so it's a different god of the gaps, if you want, but uh, not. Then I wouldn't would insist it's not a pejorative kind of way of using that phrase. You, know? mm -hmm. um, you seem to suggest that uh, God is omnibenevolent. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious um, whether that means morality has to be fundamental, just like the laws of nature. Um, like, why is morality fundamental? If so, um, and can there be a god that is in, that god without morality? Um, I haven't talked exactly about morality, but I mean, that that point, you know, probably would require a little bit further argument. But so, if there is a god who knows the best and he's willing to do the best. That's what I would call benevolent, independently from any kind of morality at this point. You know. Somebody who wants the good, and in this case, the best. Mm -hmm. you know. that, that's what I would very simply call benevolent, you know, in this case. Yes, please. Mm -hmm. There are two things that cause some kind of conflict, uh, at least in understanding. Saint, Aqu um, Saint Thomas Aquinas, which says these um, five ways, and especially the fifth way that you mentioned, from a cosmological perspective. So isn't there science overstepping and speaking about God? Mm -hmm. First question, right? And the second question has to do precisely the, um, with faith. So um, in the, the, the five ways that St. Thomas presents are prior to faith. So those are arguments of reason. But you are saying that those arguments presuppose faith. Yeah, that's why it's a fair of particular kind. And calling the question of this lady, I don't know her name, but um, you say that there's an order that we do not see. Hmm. So we have to believe that God has an order. So what comes first, the chicken or the egg? And um, what is first, the faith that we have in that order, or that order that gives us faith? <laughs> Good question, yeah. Um, I think in our... In the discovery of order, I, mean, I think that can be both ways, can be sort of like a hermeneutical circle if you want. You know? um, so we happen upon order and extrapolate from there, but I think there are also uh, very deeply embedded assumptions that we have. You know, there would be further arguments, even there are other kinds of order for which that is true too. And this is just an example of that. Uh, but I quoted to you, I mean, these, these scientists, you know, talking about looking for elegance and creations and so forth. Why would we do that? I think there's a very deep, deeply rooted sense in us that would look for that and that would respond to finding order. So it's both. I mean, then we find the order that reinforces that and we go further. 
So it's probably you know, a deepening kind of a cycle of, of looking at that. Um, and yes, it is an assumption. In that sense, I said it's, uh, there is a leap of faith of some sorts, um, but not the faith, as I said, of the revealed kind. You know, it's, um, it's the faith that is embedded in our normal operations of reason as it works in science and so forth. And yes, even in natural sciences and so even from there, there can be proofs for the existence of God. I don't want to exclude that. You know. um, but um, they always, you know, bordering on metaphysical questions, the very principles of reality, its intelligibility, and so forth. 